I was recently in New York at an event hosted by the International Economic Alliance. It was called the Global Investment Symposium. And I had a chance to speak with one of the directors of the IEA, who, upon learning that I was a clergy person with an interest in economics, revealed to me that he was a Pope John Paul II kind of man, you know, capitalism with a conscience. Now, never passing up a moment to use a little holy snark, I replied, well, I'm more of a Pope Francis tear-it-all-down kind of girl. There is a beautiful, rich snark that lies at the intersection of religion and economics. Perhaps that's because we often turn to humor to diffuse tension, and there's a lot of tense, nervous laughter when we talk about God in econ class or money in church. So I want to start with a little exercise. I'm going to name a few words, and I want you to all give thumbs up if you think the word has a positive connotation, and a thumbs down if you think the word has a negative connotation. All right, first word. Independent. Yeah, see lots of thumbs ups. How about codependent? All right, see a mix. Next word is self-sufficient. All right, lots of thumbs up. Dependent. All right. So... If any of you who were here a year ago when we welcomed author Chuck Collins to worship with us after having read his book, Born on Third Base, in our summer reading group, you might remember how we talked about how our, how our American creation myth really values self-sufficiency and independence and doesn't really value dependence. But I believe that God calls us to live interdependently where we rely on one another to build community together and to help each other out, where we live like that early community in Acts, holding all things in common. Well, maybe not all things. I'd like to keep my toothbrush to myself. Thank you. And maybe our beloved community doesn't look like a commie hippie community. But there's definitely something to be said for loosening our exclusive claims over that which might best be used as a community resource. Things like money, shelter, food, love. When we loosen our grip on exclusive claims to resources, we find that we are left with so much more than we started with. At least that's what I think Jesus might be getting at when he says, truly I tell you, there is no one who has left house or brothers, or sisters, or mother, or father, or children, or fields, now, for, this, for my sake and for the sake of the good news, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this age, houses, brothers, and sisters, mothers, and children, and fields, and into age to come, eternal life. So here's how I've interpreted this little puzzle. Is anyone here an older sibling? Do you remember what it was like when you were still the only child? When you had your parents' love and attention all to yourself? You had your toys all to yourself? And then came along your little sibling, and suddenly your parents weren't just your parents. They were your sibling's parents as well. Suddenly you had to share your toys, your bedroom, 
Your Christmas presents were halved because your parents had two children to buy for. You gave up all of these exclusive things, and you gained a new family member, a new person to love and to be loved by, a new playmate, a new roommate to stay up late with or blame messes on or team up with to convince your parents to get a dog by drawing faces on potatoes and calling them your potato puppies and taking them everywhere and telling everyone about them until your parents relented. Or maybe that was just me and my sister. (laughs) And we did get the dog. (laughs) Living interdependently requires us to give up our exclusive claims on our family and our property but we also gain access to the care and wealth of all of those in the community. Your home may no longer be a place to which you can retreat and shut out the world, pretending you don't hear the beggars at the door. But now you have many households to welcome you over the threshold whenever you are in need of safety or shelter or fellowship or a place to watch the Pats game. Your parent may now care for many in the community, but now you also have gained an entire community of parental figures. Fathers who will kiss your skinned knees and mothers who will help you with your homework and parents who will raise you to be compassionate and thirsty for justice. You may no longer be able to keep all of the harvests from your fields, But now you can enjoy the abundance of variety from the harvests of others. Truly, I tell you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for my sake and for the sake of the good news who will not receive a hundredfold now in this age houses, brothers and sisters, mothers and children and fields and in the age to come, eternal life. This is a great vision of the beloved community, and some might even say it's utopian. Many would quickly point out the impracticalities of living life like the early church in the book of Acts, where they held all things communally. And I will cede some of that point. But I think the impracticality, A, isn't as much prohibitive as it is a challenge to be worked through. And B, I think it stems less from logistical improbabilities and more from our relationship with our own private wealth. And Jesus totally gets this. I mean, he's approached by a young man, so eager to follow God, and the man asks Jesus what more he can do. I think he's pretty relatable, don't you? I mean, look at this community. We are eager to serve God, eager to love our neighbor, Wouldn't we all like to be able to directly ask Jesus, what else can I do? How much would we all love to perhaps get a direct answer? How many of us would be a little nervous about what Jesus might ask of us? So the eager young man, he asks Jesus, what more can I do? And Jesus says, sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor, and then come follow me. And we are told that the man departs in tears because he had many possessions. We aren't told whether the man plans to follow Jesus' instruction and is grieving the loss of his possessions, or whether he's grieving his inability to give up his wealth in order to enter the kingdom. 
Jesus later explains compassionately to his disciples that, man, it's hard for anyone to enter the kingdom of God. And a rich person? It's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Because having a lot of private wealth makes it really hard to live interdependently. Not the fact of having the money, but the kind of value system that we have to adopt and live into in order to amass material wealth in our economy. That kind of value system makes it really hard to then give the money up. Has anyone ever heard about how sharks need to keep swimming in order for their gills to function? I, know, I heard that somewhere. I don't know if it's true or not, but I think it's a really good analogy for how our economy is set up. The way that American capitalism, especially 20th, 21st century American capitalism works, the economy needs to constantly expand in order not to collapse. And how does the economy expand? By people buying things, by consumerism. We've got to keep the flow of consumerism steady through the gills of American capitalism or it will die. And we all engage with the economy. We all help build this growth when we buy groceries or pay our rent or mortgages, buy gas, clothing, you name it. All the necessities to cover our needs for food, shelter, and health. And for many, once these basic needs are met, well, the buck stops there and the consumption dries up. Some of us can barely afford to cover these basics in the first place, and some go with needs unmet such as our unhoused siblings and cousins, our hungry children, those of us on Medicaid or who qualify for SNAP benefits, known as food stamps. Well, they aren't the main source of consumerism that's keeping our little financial shark a-swimming. It's those of us who are able to meet our needs with money to spare. We're the ones who need to be convinced to keep spending and spending on top of our needs in order to bolster the GDP, to invigorate the economy, and to keep the consumerism expanding. Now, have any of you sold all your belongings and given the money to the poor? No, me neither. Have any of you taken your entire spending money budget and converted it into a charitable giving budget? No, me neither. So I may be standing up here on my high pulpit, but it is the farthest thing from a high horse right now. In fact, it's probably more like a golden calf. I typed this sermon on my Apple computer when I could have typed it at the library or handwritten it and sold my expensive laptop to give the money to the poor. I spent an extra $20 yesterday on my flight back from Philadelphia to get a seat over the wing of the airplane because supposedly you feel less turbulence over the wings. I could have given that $20 to the offering plate today. So why do we keep spending and spending on top of our needs instead of using that money to meet the needs of our neighbors? I think it's because we've gotten our needs confused with our wants. Our economy has trained us how to justify wants as though they are needs. And it can get kind of creepy and predatory when you think about it. I mean, for example, the beauty and fitness industry profits off of insecurity, making people, mostly women, feel like they need to buy this product or that workout plan or get that treatment done or join this boutique gym just in order to be acceptable. And also, can I just point out how weird it is that razors marketed to women cost more than the exact same blue-colored razor marketed to men? 
Anyone privileged enough to have traveled in an airplane is familiar with the instruction that in the event of cabin depressurization, you're supposed to put on your own air mask before you help others with their masks. You need to take care of your own basic needs before you can be in a position to help others. And I think that many of us would agree that Christ does call us to attend to the needs of others after we've met our own needs, but before we try to fulfill our wants. And yet that begs the question, how can we truly do that when we've been convinced that our wants are our needs? I mean, the goalposts, they they move continuously. If we can just get to a certain income level, a certain lifestyle, we'll be happy and satisfied. But then as soon as we get there, a new goal emerges to compare ourselves with. Two years ago, when I was temping full-time, relying on food stamps to supplement my grocery budget, and occasionally relying on a local food pantry when I was in between temp assignments, I would have been happy just to get paid on the federal holidays when the office was closed, let alone to have paid vacation time. And now I'm here with paid federal holidays and paid vacation and study leave, and I compare myself somewhat enviously with my friends who travel internationally multiple times a year or who stay in hotels when they travel instead of Airbnbs, you know, because an Airbnb is great because then you don't have to go to restaurants and you can save money because you can cook for yourself. And what is that? But there it is. You know, the more we have, the more we want. And the more we confuse our wants with our needs, the harder it is to prioritize our neighbor's needs over our own wants. The harder it is to even be aware of our neighbor's needs. I mean, one of the hallmarks of privilege is not realizing that you have it. And because of this, for those of us with a lot of material wealth, we have more to unlearn in order to be able to adopt and internalize the values and behaviors that enact the kingdom of God, that bring it about here on earth. So it's not so much that Jesus doesn't want the wealthy to follow or looks down on the wealthy as somehow less than or as people to be kept out of the beloved community, but perhaps Jesus just knows that it's psychologically more difficult for the wealthy to live in the way that joining this movement asks of us. It's, hard, it's psychologically more difficult for the wealthy to do that than it is for folks who have less private material wealth and are already used to relying on community interdependence to get by. It was hard to learn to share your parents' attention when your first sibling was born, but by the time your second sibling came along, you, you know the drill, the more the merrier. There's another reason, I think, that Jesus acknowledges for how hard it is to enter this interdependent, beloved kingdom if you have a mass of private wealth. And that has to do with trust. Part of being an interdependent community is trusting that your community will take care of you just as you take care of them. It's loving abundantly and living courageously. It's allowing others to help you and learning to ask for help. I don't think we can really live into our trust in the truest sense of the word if we still feel solidly in control of our situation, if we know we have that safety net just sitting in a vault. There's a reason that when you do a trust fall, you fall backwards with your eyes closed. 
It's an exercise to test whether you are able to trust your friends to catch you when you have no way of verifying for sure that their arms are outstretched and ready. The safety net that our private wealth provides us makes it harder to really trust our community to have our backs. And it's nearly impossible to have a healthy, interdependent relationship if we don't have a foundation of trust. So how do we put this into practice? When we're all aware that our utopian hippie communes may not be logistically feasible, not yet at least. You know the common financial advice, pay yourself first. It means once rent and bills have been paid, before you do anything else with your paycheck, put money into your savings. I want you to imagine, just for a moment, what it might feel like to give first. If we were to tithe to church or charity or directly to someone in need, to treat that as a financial and spiritual priority, second only to meeting our absolute necessities. Or on a smaller but similar scale, imagine perhaps going one month without spending money on anything beyond food, bills, housing, transportation, and medicine. Compare that month's budget to the month before. Pray about how it felt, what was hard about it, what was embarrassing or frustrating or empowering or heart-filling. Or we could give our children a small allowance that they can choose to spend, save, or share with the poor. And ask them how it feels to share versus to save or to spend. We can really, truly make a spiritual practice of our lives as economic agents. It can nurture, we can, it can help our families grow and learn together. It can transform our lives. It can nurture our children and strengthen our communities and our relationships with those in the margins. We are all in this together. We are all asking Jesus, what more can I do? We are all peering through the eye of the needle, all too aware of the humps on our backs. We are all grieving, for we have many possessions. We are all called to discern how we prioritize wants, needs, and sharing. And we are all wise to remember the good news of Christ's promise that with God, all things are possible. Amen.